Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Steve Von Till, who plays in the band Neurosis and also makes music as Harvest Man and also under his own name. He has a new record out under his own name called No Wilderness Deep Enough, which is coming out August 7th on Neurot Recordings. It's a stunning record and carries a lot of the qualities that I've really come to connect with in Steve's music. I think most prominently this sense of inquisition into who we are as human beings and using the gateways of the elements, the stars, the passage of time into the ancient past and into the future. He also has this way of combining melodies that are incredibly reduced and fundamental with orchestration that sweeps all around the listener without foregoing that simplicity. The ornamentation of these pieces is all incredibly deliberate and precise. I've been loving it. And also, on the same day, August 7th, that the album is released, Steve's very first collection of published poems and lyrics is coming out. It's called Harvest Man. And it's a beautiful object. It's got artwork by Maz Attle. If you head to the Neurot Recordings website, you can pre-order both the new book and the new album as well. Steve is also taking part in Sofasonic, which is the online equivalent of Supersonic Festival, which usually takes place in Birmingham, UK. It's one of my all-time favourite festivals. I'm so delighted that they're able to put on something this year and the programme looks wicked. So head over to capsule.org.uk to check out that. So that's taking place 17th to the 19th of July. So next weekend as I'm releasing this. Okay, so my conversation with Steve was excellent. I mean, as he said, once our conversation was finished, he's been doing press now for decades. So I think he's really honed the craft of expressing his thoughts on music. So this was wonderful. You can head over to vontill.org for more information on Steve's projects and to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on Steve's picks. It may be a little while before the next episode drops after this one. I've got to figure out how to manage my time now that my wife and I are back to work and juggling childcare and jobs. So enjoy this i'll see you soon this is steve von till on crucial listening soon i'll be lighting the fire Hello, Steve. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hey, Jack. How's it going? All good. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Now, we're going to talk about your three important records in a bit. But before we do, I want to start by asking a few questions about your new solo record, No Wilderness, Deep Enough. Um, Now, I understand that the album is based on piano progressions that were put together at your wife's childhood home. So I want to start by going back to that initial phase of the process. Can you bring me into what that experience was like initially putting together the first few sketches that would become this record? Yeah, sure. Um, So, yeah, my wife is from uh, northern Germany outside of Bremen um, and her family has been on the exact same home site for over 500 years, uh, living in multi-generational home. You know, she grew up with the grandparents in the home and her parents grew up that way. And, and, uh, that's the way it's been for time immemorial, which, you know, being American, we're, we, we have a different, uh, sense of history and time here being a young experiment. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, I won't comment on how it's going right now, right. but, um, <laughs> but, um, even by old world quote, old world standards, um, that's a long time 
for yeah. people to be be somewhere, even in Europe. You know, I mean, you see the old buildings, but very rarely have families stayed in one place. And so, you know, me being a child of the West, I mean, my my uh, family had immigrated to the United States at different different times, um, in different generations, and and had constantly moved west until my parents who met in the Midwest, finally ended up in, in California, close to the Pacific Ocean. And uh, I've always been fascinated with looking back the other direction. My, my parents were always good with genealogy, and, and uh, I've always been obsessed with history and, and um, ancient cultures and whatnot. So I've always had a fascination with it. And so I don't know if it's my personal interests and my fascination that... M- causes me to obsess on things like that. But when I'm there in Neela's family home, I, I feel like this, the air is more dense mm. and the, the, like the, um, there's a weight, there's like a depth. It It's not, it's not like dark or spooky, but it's, it's deep mm-hmm. and, and it is heavy. Um, I mean, so just looking at this, a simple field, with some cows on it and wondering how long have they been plowing those fields? <laughs> you right. Know? Right. How, yeah. how, how long, like, you know, looking at the old pear trees and they're pretty old for pear trees, but <laughs> I mean, they're probably pretty new for this family. <laughs> I mean, how many, how many, uh, different orchards of fruit trees have they grown throughout the years? How, how, how long has that garden soil where they're pulling the tonight salad greens, uh, been tilled and replaced and and um and i also kind of feel like there's these like familial kind of ghosts in the place not and i'm not getting super very supernatural here like i'm not seeing physical ghosts but but you feel the energy yeah and um i kind of think that i accidentally opened myself up to expressing that musically and i say accidentally because i didn't I none of the, nothing about this project until the last steps were intentional. It was typical, uh, you know, West Coast guy going to Europe and suffering from pretty bad jet lag. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I it's nine hours different, and and what do you do when you visit family? You especially in northern Germany, you're you know having a nice breakfast. You're having cakes and coffee in the afternoon you're having uh, a nice you know a big lunch it's good dinner lots of rich wonderful bread and beer and uh i i just could not sleep you know it's like oh <laughs> so i knew that was going to happen so i brought my laptop and a small keyboard and my headphones and i set them up in her bedroom in the corner um and I thought, okay, I was going to teach myself a new piece of software I've been meaning to learn, and I never have time. Um, but, of course, I was sleepless and starting to be in a hallucinatory state. And um, for the life of me, couldn't concentrate on anything technical. So I, I just started messing around, and I found this really expressive instrument. I don't usually mess around with uh, sample instruments, but it was an upright piano sampled from all different angles with different microphones and it was super expressive and it felt very natural i mean i have a piano here in the house and i it felt like that same way you're feeling these the physical strings kind of move the air and vibrate in front of you and i was i just kind of went oh this is interesting and i i'm not a piano player but these really simple but kind of harmonically complex chord shapes started just sort of appearing and i started recording them and over the following week I started overdubbing some Mellotron sample banks and some French horn and again not realizing I was creating anything I wasn't writing anything specific I was just kind of following the implied harmonies you know mm-hmm. um within this within these simple chords it seemed to ask for these harmonies like they I didn't labor over them they just came out and felt right and I thought nothing of it recorded it and uh, wasn't until I got home uh, that I kind of kept feeling the need to open up those files in, in my home studio here where I'm sitting right now and and I just started improvising some Moog synthesizer on the top and taking some of those digital 
sources and treating them through my analog gear here and running them through filters and delays and reverbs and over a series of months and it wasn't a months of a lot of work it was months of like uh, chipping away here and there mm -hmm. um in very micro amounts of small time it pretty organically formed itself into a, into a shape about six shapes specifically maybe seven i think there's a, a a piece a piece or two that didn't make it uh, into fully developed form for the record but so as i was starting to see the shape of this of these audio pieces forming um i put them into rough mixes that that felt pretty good and um but i didn't know what it was you know it it, it wasn't solo work in the sense of these weren't guitar based songs it was not guitar chord progressions where I was writing words or vocal lines or trying to do song craft. It didn't feel appropriate for me to call it Harvest Man because that would imply I would want to go grab the an electric guitar and a fuzz box and start to psych out all over the top of it. <laughs> um, so I, I really had no idea what it was. I my, my thought was, I think I make ambient music now. Um <laughs> Which, I mean, isn't totally out of the blue if you, you look at elements of uh, different things in my work. And, and I've been a, a lifelong lover of ambient music, but I wondered if I had a new project, a new something new, you know. And so I contacted Randall Dunn, who worked with me on my last solo record, and I said, Hey, uh, I don't know what this is, but I think I want to go into a professional studio and replace the sampled piano with a actual uh, piano performance and hire a cello player to give a little breath to the Mellotron strings. I mean, I love those kind of 70s Mellotron style strings, but I also like to hear the intimate, you know, bow scraping the strings to give things a little bit of breath. Hmm. Um, and replace the French horn with somebody who can actually play French horn and write, <laughs> write parts based on my simple parts. And he, um, he went away for a couple of days and listened to it and said, yeah, I, I definitely want to do that, but you should sing on it and make it your next solo record. And I was a bit um, shocked by that and totally disagreed, <laughs> <laughs> um, but agreed to have an open mind and it's funny because it was spring break 2018 from work when I, we were over at Germany and the, the pieces first formed. And it was over, you know, summer and fall where I'd kind of hammered them into this the shape that they're basically now in. And it was winter break when Randall had told me that. And my wife was again in Germany visiting her parents, but I was here alone in the house with the dogs. And I, I didn't want to sit out here and work in my studio with the dogs in the house all day alone. So... I took a condenser microphone out into our living room, which has really nice tall ceilings and is a really nice place to sing into. And every morning uh, I woke up with my coffee and a notebook and a pen, and I just improvised um, vocal patterns on top of the various pieces, trying to figure out what would work and what sounded right and what what felt appropriate in that music um, you know, as I was very hesitant, I'm like, I don't know if I need my gruff, scratchy croak all over this beautiful music, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but by the end of that week, I had, I had hammered through the lyrics and the parts and I'd gone through all old journals and uh, various old half-baked poetry and stolen enough lines and arranged them into things that made sense. And, uh, it came together very organically again in a relatively short period of time. So every step up to that point just felt very organic and unplanned. And the Randall's part actually felt like a challenge, you know, like mm. almost daring me to sing on it to make it my next solo record. And by the end of that week, I called him up and I told him I agreed with him and, and we booked time, uh, for June of last year, before I was going to head out on tour with neurosis. And, uh, we went in for a few days and, um, he had worked with some people in Brooklyn where he lives now to get the, uh, cello and the French horn done. And, uh, we went in and replaced, um, uh, the piano and 
recorded the vocals and mixed it down in a few days in in June of last year and it I, I I couldn't be more happy with it. It was I think these accidental pieces are more gratifying because you don't feel so attached to them. They they weren't they don't feel labored over, so uh-huh. um I can listen to them easier. Yes. You know, at least for, at least for a little while. You know, it's something I labored over as soon as it's done. I, I don't want to hear it again. You know, but um so I don't know that, that that's the way it took shape. It was it was a very gratifying process for me. And then the end result too it felt has been gratifying and challenging in that um again, it doesn't feel completely out of the blue knowing my interests and and different aspects of what I have done over the years, but compared to my other output it's very um outside the box outside the expectation outside a comfort zone if you will you know and so uh, it also felt like okay i'm gonna have to step out there out of my comfort zone and own this uh beautiful record and as uh my statement my musical statement for for this moment yeah, I mean, I was really astounded to see that the vocals weren't part of the initial vision of this record because my first listen to this album came prior to knowing that they had been the proposal of Randall Dunn. And I would have guessed that these were songs that had then flowered outward into these all, you know, other different types of instruments but had started from a kernel of being the voice in dialogue with an instrument like how that's how fused the voice seems to be to the kernel of these pieces from what i'm hearing but to take this through into the poetry collection as well you've got a new collection your first published collection am i right of um, poetry and, and lyrics steve yeah yeah absolutely and uh that's that's another thing that's uh, out of the comfort zone. I mean, you you know, you come from our <clears throat> background of of heavy underground music, and and even saying the words poetry book kind of stick in your throat a little bit. You know? <laughs> yeah, it, you know. But I mean, I've been writing poetry my entire adult life, never with the intention of of making it public or of of them having their own life. But usually, they've been kind of. Um, pushed aside to either live and die in my personal journals or to be um, mined for lyric fodder hmm. uh, later on. You know, usually lyric writing is, is totally different. Lyric Lyrics have to fit a musical landscape. They've got to have a certain cadence, a certain rhythm, a certain number of syllables. You might want to, at least the way I write them, you know, I might want to hang on a certain vowel sound because that's what I'm hearing the music needs. And so lyrics could be, you know, eight or 12 lines stolen from eight or 12 different journal pages or poems or thought of on the spot or a combination of the above. So it's almost like collage. Right. Uh, that ends up making some sort of sense on its own and becoming something else and unique. And, you know, perhaps I won't even know what, what they're referring to. Maybe certain lines were certain er aspects or things in my life, but... Uh, it could be a collage of five or six different times in my life, but then it becomes this new animal that reveals itself later. Like, oh, that's what it means. Almost like a divination or clairvoyance, you know, not of myself, but of the of the words. <laughs> the the words fr frame a future reality perfectly. Right. Um, but um, but the poems. They have to kind of occupy their own space on the page without music to carry them or to provide any sort of emotional backdrop. They have to they have to claim that spot and they have to say everything that they want to say without um, music to give it um, context. And um, so also last year, at some point, I decided I was just going to keep a journal of poems that I would work on each one until I thought it was done. And um, some of them were quite short. Some of them were a bit longer. But again, it, it just kind of came naturally, and I, I didn't have really any intention of doing anything with it. I just wanted to do it as an exercise. And when I got to 23 of them, uh, obviously it's a perfect number. I love, you know, so I'm like, oh, 23 is a good number. <laughs> um, and I thought maybe I would 
put them out as a photocopied chapbook or something and, you know, sell it direct or kind of like a fanzine, you know, going back to my teen years when I would start a fanzine or, or what have you. And, and, um, and then it, the idea kind of blossomed once I had acknowledged to myself that I wanted to put it out there in the world and that I thought, um, and I stopped that kind of self-doubt voice of, oh, who are you to think you can put poetry out there? You know, uh, <laughs> it, what makes you think you're good enough? And, you know, that, that voice pops up in the music all the time, too. But for some reason, um, I've always felt at some point enough. Uh, and thank God for punk rock for giving me the license to do that. Mm. Um, that uh, screw it. I'm throwing it out there. Attitude, you know, do it myself. And so um, to give it context... Once I decided I wanted to put it out, I thought I would self-release it, and I thought in order to kind of tie it into anybody giving a shit, I, w I would combine it with my lyrics of all my solo records up until this new one, <laughs> you know, just to kind of frame it there, and that, and that I would release it at the same time as the record, again, just to kind of uh, give it some sort of frame of reference where enough people might be interested to justify making a small printing. Um and then a buddy of mine, when I was brain, when I was researching um, the printing process and considering trying to find distribution for it, I, I asked a friend of mine, Duncan Barlow, who's uh, been in a bunch of old punk and hardcore bands from back in the day, and, and he's a, a writing professor um, at University of South Dakota right now, and he runs his own um, publishing house. And so I, I was just asking him for advice, and at one point he's like, you know what, why don't I just why don't I just publish it? And then that instantly validated it, you know, into something that was worth, uh, worth printing and that might get a little distribution to some independent bookshops and, and, uh, yeah, another kind of just, uh, I don't know what wonderful blooming of, of an idea that, uh, that took shape and, um, felt validated uh, over time by, by challenging myself to get outside that comfort zone and, and, um, and own the new work. Well, Steve, I've been thoroughly enjoying both the new record and the book as well. I think both of them seem to have, to my mind anyway, a sense of quiet contemplation, which I think feels incredibly valuable to tap into right now. So um, I implore people listening to go and check those out where's the best place for them to check out both the new record and the book as well uh, well the release date for both is going to be august 7th um there are uh, a couple streaming singles already playing on youtube and spotify or Bandcamp. um and for uh purchasing pre-orders you can go to vontil.org or neurotrecordings.com and you'll end up at our uh, American or European uh, web shops where you can pre-order either one of those or both. Spot on. Okay, well, let's go on to your important records, Steve. I've asked you to pick three important records, and you have done so. Um, the first question that I like to ask is about how you thought about the term important when picking this list of records. So was there a particular way that you understood that word in order to come up with the, the list of records that you did? Well... You know, whenever whenever asked to narrow things down to small numbers, it's like a nightmare. Yeah. You know, as <laughs> you know, um, and when you're a music nerd like we are, and you have such a wide variety of things that you like and listen to, um, to get down to any small number is is agonizing. And so what I, what I tried to do was just what first instincts mm -hmm. and my first instinct was, I didn't end up sticking with my first instincts. So <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that. But my first instinct was not to go historical roots of, of where my heavy psychedelic music comes from, you know, for the most part, because that's been spoken to many times, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the black Sabbath, 
the Joy Division, Black Flag, you know, that that whole angle of what inspired me as a teenager, you know, mm -hmm. to to want to make the music I make. So I thought I would go maybe with some things that have been important to me uh, over a long period of time, but perhaps informed angles of the new record, the solo record, uh -huh. you know, uh, um, maybe. And, then, and so that's kind of where I started. And so the the... I ended up picking one that was pretty historically uh, there from the beginning of, of even my heavy music making. And then I, I also picked one that was kind of uh, after that that informed a, a love of a, of a genre, which has continued. And then my third pick I threw out at the last moment for one by the same artist, uh, which is a very recent obsession. This is a really nice selection of records. I really enjoyed diving into these. I mean, let's take your first one, whichever one you want to go with, Steve. If you give me the name of it to begin with. It's Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii. Ace. Okay, so tell me a bit about why this record's important to you. Um, <clears throat> just to set it up a little bit, it's never been an album properly unless you found a bootleg. Um, when I first came across it, it was a VHS in a local rental shop dusty and in the corner and beat up and, and you know not nobody was paying attention to this thing and it was uh late 80s and uh pink floyd is one of those bands where when i was when i was coming up as a young guy that you know uh they were all over rock radio um which is what i grew up listening to as a young kid get first getting into music i um, my parents both listened to music we always had a nice stereo my dad was more Kingston Trio, uh, Folk, John Denver, Jim Croce. And my mom uh, got more into into 70s rock, you know, Eagles and Queen, which was awesome, uh, <laughs> and, and other things. But um, so listening to rock radio was pretty common. But I was, as I developed my own musical tastes, I wanted it harder and heavier and harder and heavier and, you know, till I discovered heavy metal and then punk rock and and then everything else but um so Pink Floyd kind of represented that bloated arena rock thing where where everybody's talking about it. I remember kid next to me in 5th grade drawing Pink Floyd the wall on his uh peachy folder you know and he <laughs> couldn't stop talking about it you know and uh, and and um you know, every party you'd go to where people are getting screwed up, the Pink Floyd of the Wall is on the TV or Zeppelin song remains the same, you know? <laughs> and so I, I just kind of grew to dislike that whole thing. Like, I don't know, man. It's, yeah. You know, <laughs> um, I, I eventually grew to appreciate and like that stuff. But at the time, it was no no go. Mm -hmm. And especially as I was getting into punk rock, forget all that bloated arena rock <laughs> stuff, you know? Uh, but this was different because this came from a time before Dark Side of the Moon, where they were still really um, much more of a space rock band in a lot of ways. Um, I think they were heavily into avant-garde art scene. They were doing a lot of soundtracks to art films. Um, the music is mostly instrumental. There's not a whole lot of singing on on this era pink floyd mm -hmm. um super psychedelic i mean very trippy mm -hmm. and very moody very there's ambient passages um the songs are really long um there's heavy bits with with screaming that'll rival uh some great hardcore singers there um but it starts with this, and I don't. So when you listen to it, I'm assuming you had to go to a, a modern Spotify playlist where they've combined the song Echoes. That's right. Yep. Right. In the original version, and again, it, it, some of my recollections of it are tied to the video. Um, it starts with just this simple piano through a Leslie speaker in the song Echoes, which if you know the song Echoes, it's classic. Yes. Um, Heavily reverbed, heavily Leslied, and it corresponds to the slowest zoom in you've ever seen in a film <laughs> from, 
from the back of Pompeii, and, and for people that don't know this, live at Pompeii, there's no audience. This was done for a French art film, uh, wanting to kind of combine art and Pink Floyd in the moment. I don't know if it was ever widely circulated at the time or if it kind of died, but um, it's just the band and all of their incredible equipment in the ruins of an amphitheater in Pompeii. Um, there's no audience. Uh, but the, the performances of these songs, and the songs, are, the set list is great. It's got Echoes, uh, Careful With That Axe, Eugene, A Saucer Full of Secrets, um, One of These Days, Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun, hmm. and then Echoes Part 2 is how is how it's kind of framed up, with, with some other footage in there hinting towards Dark Side of the Moon era stuff. But... So it's the best selection of their songs up until that point, in my opinion. All the songs, even though they're from different albums, feel like they belong together in that group. Uh, and I believe that these performances, they sound as good as studio performances, and I think the energy's better. It's, they're, they're just incredible versions of these songs. And so for me, it just scratches so many itches. It scratches the psychedelic itch, the ambient itch, the, the, psychedelic, uh, the heavy rock itch the kind of um it's moody it's somber uh it's got moments of rage it's got moments of introspection um it's before all that bluesy david gilmore guitar solo stuff Mm -hmm. you know it's it's more like him sitting in the dirt without a shirt on with a slide feeding (laughs) feeding volume knob swells and and slides into his benson echo wreck you know, that unique analog delay that uses a magnetic drum instead of tape, and it just sounds so juicy. Um, I don't know. It, it, I, I loved it so much that when on my first tour with Neurosis, when we were, uh, you know, playing living rooms and basements and and uh, staying at people's houses, I brought that VHS with me, and everywhere we went, we became like ministers of the gospel <laughs> of Live at Pompeii. <laughs> And and everywhere we went, we would make people sit and watch this. You know, like if if you have you have to you have to see this. You know, <laughs> again, like you know, saying no, Pink Floyd is not just the wall. Yeah, <laughs> or right. Dark side of the moon. Like there's a whole, and, and I don't necessarily buy into the. I love the mythology of the Sid Barrett era, hmm. um, but I don't actually resonate with the music as deeply as I do this set of songs. This set of songs to me is the favorite. My favorite pink floyd stuff um short of maybe a couple things that came later like welcome to the machine being the best song to ever live on classic rock radio the fact that there's no drums and only synthesizer (laughs) you know it's kind of a uh revolutionary thing on its own but but this set of songs to me is the definitive uh pink floyd for me it's i don't know I, i i love it so much and to this day i still revisit it often my funniest personal story in recent history I can think of is I had a, I had a knee surgery uh, sometime within the last decade. I, l- I left my ACL ligament on the backside of a mountain here skiing. Oh. And, uh, and I told my, my buddy here, I'm like, man, when I'm, when I get home and when I'm coming down off the, off the anesthesia, all I want to do is watch live at Pompeii. <laughs> so, so I made him come out here to my home studio and disassemble all my, you know, powered speakers and a, a DVD player and a computer monitor and, and set it all up, you know, <laughs> for me so I, I could see it when I was when I was coming to and still in that zone. And uh, it, it was perfect. And, I, and I, I still love it to this day. I, I kind of revisited the songs before we were going to talk about it just to refresh my memory. And, and I still stand by that those are the best performances of those tracks. Um, yeah. What did you think about it? I, I, so, so I should caveat this by saying uh, this era of Pink Floyd has come up three times on the podcast already. This is clearly like a really rich period of Pink Floyd for people. Um, I personally, I did come in through Dark Side of the Moon. Um, I then also was vaguely familiar with the Sid Barrett stuff and had very little exposure to the stuff in the middle until doing this podcast. And Metal came up twice. Atom Heart Mother came up once. Um, I was, even though I'd heard those records, 
this felt like a particularly dark suite of music from them that never really lifts into the light at least not in my initial exposure like it's as you say there's very little vocals but when you're kind of halfway down um the oh fuck i forgot the name of it setting was it setting controls for the heart of the sun yeah. you're halfway down that track i mean it sounds like some kind of really shadowy ritual kraut rock something for sure that song alone how many how many records how many bands have based their whole sound on that song yes yeah i couldn't believe it um so yeah it's really in, in it's an intense set of tracks um I mean, one thing I wanted to ask you, Steve, because, like I say, my exposure to the actual originals that, of uh, this material isn't that hot. I mean, I wanted to know, how, does, how do they differ atmospherically or in terms of their delivery from the original tracks? I did check in with Setting Controls for the Heart of the Sun, the original version, and again, uh, it sounded like it didn't have that kind of really thunderous kind of tom attack going on what's the contrast like between these and the original material you know i've never a b'd them right i, I always kind of always kind of digest them separately i should have before we talked but <laughs> to me there's something about maybe it's the fact that it was recorded in those ruins of that ancient roman atmosphere uh, at amphitheater mm. um so i've read i've read some things about it and i guess the guys that were there were talking about how clearly those structures were were made for sound right you know they, they were made knowing some some ancient techniques some ancient alchemy you know perhaps like some golden triangle ratio or something of of how to build this thing so that it would reflect the sound back so that everybody had a good sounding spot mm. and so maybe they were playing off the way the sound was coming back at them off of off of the environment you know and I, the, like you said, the tom attack, the drums, for yeah. some reason, the recording of the drums on this take, and also when you watch it, and you, and you watch uh, Nick Mason going for it on those tom bits with his ridiculous tight butterfly shirt, um, <laughs> it, it uh, he even loses a stick. I think it might be in set the controls. <laughs> You know, he's doing the kind of jazz, the jazzed out. Oh, no, that's um, Sauce Full of Secrets, I think. But um, he loses a stick, and you never hear it. You know, he is just <laughs> he is just right on it. And um, I don't know, the, the way the drums sound is very different. It's, I mean, obviously, it's a very natural, no-nonsense recording. It's not, there's no, not like there was much studio trickery back in that day anyway. There wasn't, mm -hmm. you know. Most of the time, they would just go to some beautiful studio in london and and record as a band um but i i don't know maybe there's a little bit more aggression maybe there's a little bit more um intensity because it, it is done live it's not done in a studio environment mm -hmm. and maybe with the film cameras rolling they um feel a bit of pressure sure to deliver you know, a, a more intense version. And also, they've been playing those songs for a while, you know? They're, they're not... Uh, usually, songs uh, develop a different life after you've recorded it, you know? Because maybe you've gotten to the point where you, you're ready to record, and then it takes a life on its own as you take it out into the world and perform it. 100%. And, and, yeah, and, and it starts to turn into something else, even if the arrangements stay somewhat the same. You know, just, just the way you deliver a moment becomes more clear and intentional. And so, yeah, I, I just think, um, I think they're more powerful versions than the studio versions, each and every one of those tracks. This is my final question on this one. Do you think any of that's to do with the fact that they're playing into an empty venue? I mean, <clears throat> it seems that they... To me, like they're basically just playing into the ether. They're playing into architecture. They're getting no immediate visceral human feedback. So I wonder whether the feedback that they are receiving is perhaps a bit more esoteric. They're having to pull on something different than that human reciprocal response that you would usually get in a live performance. And maybe that takes the track on a swerve. I don't know. Yeah, I think you might be right. You know, and, and the way... The way the film sets it up, mm. I, mean, I know we're not talking about films, we're talking about records, but um, 
But the way the film sets it up, there's footage of them visiting volcanic areas, you know, around Pompeii, which, uh, you know, seeing the lava boil out of the center of the earth, um, being in this kind of place where the landscape is actually alive, which you've ever, if you've ever been in an area with volcanic activity like that, like it reminds me of when I visited Iceland. Um, mm. It, it, when the earth is that alive and it's that tangible, I think it uh, it definitely conjures intensity. I mean, you, and you think of the history of Pompeii and those, you know, the pictures of those people, the ash silhouettes of the people in their last moments of that uh, historical eruption is freaking intense. Yeah. You know, you know? and so... My feeling was always that perhaps they were meditating on that energy, mm-hmm. the energy of, of, the, of those people trapped in their last moment of being in that kind of alive um, landscape where the, the energy of the earth clearly dwarfs any silly idea that humans can come up with. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I so saw. I think, as you said, you know, pl- also playing into architecture. That was a great way of saying it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna remember that. Uh, uh, I think all of those things, you know, kind of pulled something different out of them, and and an intensity. Great. Well, let's go to your second record now, Steve, if you could give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you as well. All right. Second one I chose, which was uh, a last minute I kicked one well, Both of the last two, I kicked ones off. Uh, I was going to pick an ambient album, but then I realized that, you know, I don't know if the world needs two, two guys to talk about a Brian Eno record anymore. <laughs> Fair point. Um you know, I mean, it, it's a part of my life, and I and I love it. But, but I decided to go with one that might would be the, for people that don't know me, maybe more of an outlier. But I, I chose African Head Charge off the beaten track. Yeah. So why did this one make the cut? Pretty much since my roommate in about 1992 had a lot of these collections, um, I started to become pretty obsessed with Adrian Sherwood's take on dub. Um, which led me down the rabbit hole to all other dub as well, historical and, and current. Um, but that particular one really struck me at the time because um, I wasn't too interested in reggae, for example. Mm. Um, I, I mean, of course, I liked the sound of Bob Marley and the Wailers and Peter Tosher, great bands, tight bands, killer production. Uh, but it wasn't that big of an interest for me, you know? Um but this sounded like somehow it was fusing these ancient tribal rhythms with, uh, with the kind of almost UK industrial noise. You know, you almost hear a little yeah. bit of uh, like noise art in there, uh, and then mixed in a Jamaican dub fashion. Like you know, it was really. You got that deep driving bass holding it all together, but the the way these percussive layers and at the time i was also really getting into percussion we neurosis we were entering a percussive stage so i was listening to a lot of of uh of african percussion music um middle eastern uh percussive music and uh this kind of rode that line between all of it it it, it sounds like it, it has middle eastern influences african influences jamaican influences it, it sounds cut up it sounds like it's using loops there's clearly samples. Mm-hmm. And at that time, again, we were just getting into samples. Like about 1992 is when we put out our first album where we used the sampler as an instrument. And so we were looking for guidance because there wasn't any in our scene. Right. Um, you know, so there, there was um, a few industrial people using primitive samplers. There was uh, a public enemy uh, using very primitive samplers, like you know, one-second samplers on DJ mixers or or on the 
uh, rack mount gear in a few studios where you could trap a very brief bit, you know, and you had to, you had to manually play it. You couldn't loop it in a computer like you can now. Right. And so Adrian Sherwood was using all of these techniques uh, of noise and cutups and loops and, and primitive sampling and uh, having these great percussion players be the kind of core of it and really, I don't know, creating something very unique. I'd never heard anything like it. And still to this day, maybe it's because of the way the technology was then, it, it still sounds unique. Like, I don't think you could replicate it, even though the technology is easier. I think you would make different choices in the way that you would assemble something like that. I still love Adrian Sherwood's productions to this day mm. and his stuff, but I think whatever whatever his constraints were to making that music drove drove that final product and um i don't know i i, I just really love that one mm. i mean i've seen you talk about the fact that his approach to using this studio as an instrument was very impactful as well um can you tell me a bit about how that's fed into your own practice as well yeah for sure i mean even as i'm sitting here right now at my studio desk and <laughs> i've got uh several filters and Sherman filter banks and analog delays stacked all on top of each other uh, through all my aux sends on my mixing desk because in my Harvest Man project, and I used that technique also on this new solo record of taking some of the original tracks and instead of um, giving any sort of allegiance to, oh, that's the way it was tracked, that's the way it'll stay... Um, I'm firmly of the belief that I'm allowed to destroy it and rebuild it and into any shape I want to, to the very last second to where I've recorded the final mix. And I love picking apart stuff. I love, um, muting entire sections of, of the music. I love, uh, filtering, phasing, uh, manually throwing things through delays and then, you know, changing the EQ on the delay as it's fading away. All of those dub style techniques that, uh, you know, Lee Scratch Perry and the scientist and King Tubby all kind of innovated and, and Adrian Sherwood took on there in a pretty unique manner as a white guy in London you know, yeah. uh, immersing himself in that scene and becoming embraced by it and, and bringing his own unique flavor to it because I just love that that sound of effects. There's something about the way those phased out, um, delayed decays speak to me. Like If, if I hear a, a flanger sweeping across a source... Uh, I'm instantly hooked. I don't care what it is. It, it, <laughs> if it, you know, my, my joke with my friends is if it goes, I'm in, you know? Yeah. Um, another sound that I mean really protrudes on this, which is kind of ironic because it's sort of mixed in a way that doesn't feel like it's designed to is the bass. Am I right in thinking, is that Jar Wobble playing the bass throughout this record? I don't know if he's on the whole thing, but he's definitely on it. Yes, I mean his bass lines. Like when I feel like I'm picking them out, are really strong as well. Like um, really add like a bit of rhythmic augmentation to what's going on with the percussion, and really frame the music in a different way a lot of the time, right? Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you could pretty much say that that it, that whole genre is lost without the strong bass, right? You know, like it carries it carries the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, it, it it's what i don't know makes you keep moving to it you know yeah i mean that that and the and the frequency you know getting that extra bump in that in that low mid-range you know that that just really wants uh it becomes really the focal point and everything kind of else kind of moves around it absolutely um and is there a particular track on this record as well that protrudes for you as doing something particularly interesting or just one that you really like I'm bad with titles, to be honest. Um, <laughs> Me too. I, I mean, there are certain bits. There's, um, yeah, again, I can't speak to the titles. One of the tracks in particular is kind of moving along with that bass and the African percussion. And then all of a sudden it sounds like um, a Moroccan trance uh, 
trance band just jumps right on top of everything um (laughs) out of nowhere and and it's incredible and then there's the the other track later on where i i believe it's einstein yes it is yeah uh talking um uh and they're using his his vocal samples uh, all of the all all of it together as a group you know for the most part becomes one piece for me Mm. i rarely listen to it in isolation but uh yeah the dogs always get me the dog barks that are clearly being played <laughs> on a keyboard it's just yeah. unreal yeah that, yeah that's that primitive sampler or, or uh if i'm not mistaken there's the one bit where it's got the voice sample and, and they paint their faces for war right right it comes out of nowhere right before this percussion jumps in and all of that is just it it, it brings up all these images you know it's definitely a journey is it one that you still listen to now? Absolutely, quite quite <laughs> frequently. In fact, I, I just I probably bought my second, maybe my third copy recently as they as they on you sound just did a bunch of reissues. So I think I probably got it on yeah, CD and two different vinyl cuts. This makes us realize to what extent the same language means the same mentality. In this sense. Thinking and language are linked together. They created the spiritual tools. Okay, Steve, let's go to your final important record now i say record but we can talk about what this is um yeah i love the fact i mean do you know what i've had such a great time with this and i'm not a stickler for technicalities but two of these aren't even records which is wonderful (laughs) one's a bootleg and one's uh well we'll talk about it uh so give me the name of this one and then tell me a bit about why it's important to you yeah the name is uh last and first men by Johan Johansson, and I hope I get the pronunciation right, Yair Elazar Glotman. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I kicked off another record for this one. I was going to put Johan Johansson's Fordlandia, because that's been a long, since I first heard it, uh, since Alex Hall of Grails first played that for me, hmm. it's been one of my favorite records. Um, and kind of sits right in there, more so with my ambient listening than with, say, like neoclassical or whatever, even though I I did get into Philip Glass and things like that pretty early on. Uh, Johan Johansson kind of took that to another level with this kind of really haunting minimalism. Mm. Uh, again, going back to, to place, maybe since he's from Iceland where the land is alive, uh, Mm. He has more of a haunting atmosphere. But I kicked off Fordlandia because literally in the last few weeks, thanks to my friend Thomas Hooper, great artist, great tattoo artist uh, from England, now in in Austin, Texas, uh, he and I share a lot of ideas all the time. We're always texting each other nonsense. And and we're very much into these minimalist uh, neoclassical composers, um, Niels Fromm, Olafur Arnolds, uh, Johan Johansson, and... And it wasn't that long ago where he texted me the link to this, the set that just came out with the DVD and two LPs of this soundtrack. I was unaware of it. I thought the last thing he had made before he died was uh, the Mandy right, sa- same, yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. And then, so this kind of caught me by surprise, like, oh, holy <laughs> shit, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, and... Um, my first listening to it was uh, was just to some some tracks because I I, I, want, I wanted to wait till I actually had a copy and I actually just got my copy two days ago the box with the LPs and the art prints and the and the Blu-ray, but Thomas in great fashion he 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 was sitting there obsessing on this film and he dubbed the <laughs> he dubbed the he dubbed the audio of the of the movie playing which is. The entire movie, again, to to set the to set the scene is um, Johan Johansson's idea uh, using a great cinematographer inspired by uh, some Dutch photographer's book of these things. I believe they're called uh, spomeniks. Yeah, they're they're these. E- e- um, I can't remember what country they're in exactly. Are they in former Yugoslavia? Yes, uh, I believe so. In the Balkan Mountains. Yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah, the Balkan Mountains. There's these. In- incredible monuments to uh 
horrific massacres or concentration camps or and it's just the epitome of that bold um not non-representational uh art that i don't know yeah i don't know how to describe but i don't have the language to describe these monuments but but it's all black and white 16 millimeter excellent footage of these incredible monuments in the mountains Mm-hmm. And and you've got this Johan Johansson muscular, uh, dense, haunting. I, I wouldn't quite say depressing, but it's super moody. Mm-hmm. Uh, a soundtrack that that goes through very long, very quiet passages, very minimal, and then occasionally sweeps into heartbreakingly beautiful passages, and then back down into kind of a cold resonance. And the soundtrack alone, the album on Deutsch Gramophone, is a great album. There's nothing wrong with the music in and of itself. It's a masterpiece. I think it's, I think it's replacing Fordlandia for me. Wow. In a lot of in a lot of ways. Um, but the caveat is that what Thomas first sent me was an MP3 dub <laughs> of the film itself, which is the soundtrack only. There's no actors or anything. It, but it's got, it's got uh, Tilda Swinton doing a narration of a sci-fi novel from the 1930s by this guy Olaf Stapledon, and it makes it even more haunting because the the language in the book is from a future voice uh, of after humanity has evolved multiple times over and evolved and and gone through extinctions um multiple times over it's some future versions of ourself that i I think this is the definitive version in fact i I told i told thomas i was going to throw him under the bus on a podcast uh for dubbing this mp3 for me and and he he told me he was thinking about writing deutsch gramophone an email telling him they have to release the version with with tilda swinton's narration on it you know uh because it's just incredible i mean it the music reminds me like i said of when i first kind of heard philip glass it's got this these repeating patterns but it's darker and way heavier. I mean, n- nothing will replace what it feels like being 19 years old and, and seeing Koyana Scotsy for the first time. But <laughs> um, but this this takes me back. There's a nostalgic feel to this as well. It, it reminds me of what it was like in my early 20s. Um, and we were first kind of going full-on apocalyptic and multimedia in an age where that wasn't easy, where there weren't, weren't digital sources or digital ways of presentation. Mm. You know, I was going to video shops and and renting every bizarre art film I could find from the beginning of cinema uh, until that time and and watching a lot of this stuff. And and, um, this feels like a forgotten documentary. Yes. Yeah. Uh, You know, and and, um, it's got definitely a vintage vibe to it. There's the sounds within the sound. What I've always liked about Johan Johansson in general is he's got the beautiful score. He's got the beautiful performance by um, symphonic or orchestral musicians, but he's also got these fucked up noise treatments in there. Yeah. Yeah. And just the way you hear these like strange crackles and bubbling or things fizzling out. In fact, even the very last minute of the entire score has these just sound that I'm completely uh, attracted to these these decaying, distorted tape sounding like tape falling apart, like a tape that's been played a, a thousand times, and there's not not a whole lot of magnetic media left on it. Mm. You know, it, it's um, so the fact that you've got this incredibly emotional soundtrack uh, with these beautiful orchestration these electronic manipulations this uh apocalyptic voice from the future uh, uh, talking about simultaneously that we do have a future but we do have a doom right yeah yeah (laughs) 
you know, uh, all of it together just plays into, like I said, this, this, the reason why I, I threw this one out there at the last moment was because it's my current obsession. Yeah. Thanks to Thomas Hooper. <laughs> Good on you, Thomas Hooper. Um, yeah, this is amazing. Um, I think so much of what you talked about and what I've been deriving from this, having dived into the film, I haven't finished it yet, but listening to the music and some of the things you've said, it's, it feels like something that's totally dislodged from any sense of affiliated time. Like it's, as you say, it's like a lost documentary from the past about the future, reaching back into the past, featuring these <laughs> sculptures, which seem to be ancient, but also kind of in recent history, but could be monuments like odes to uh, future gods from many years down the line. Um, it gives you nostalgic feelings. Even you're embarking on time travel, Steve, in, in, in your process of listening to this record. It's a total scramble of not being affiliated with like any particular point in time, um, which completely blows me away and kind of makes me think that there shouldn't be the capability for a single human being sat in the present tense to even have a solid connection to this thing. But something is clearly pulling. Um, do you think there's anything... I mean, I've heard you talk about some of your thematic and philosophical fixations do you feel like that there was already aspects of you and questions that you were asking that meant that this film was totally ripe for you to be interested in it absolutely i mean it it, it everything about it is completely in my wheelhouse <laughs> um now whether i have the language to speak about it or not is yet, yet to be seen and that's why i'm a, that's why i'm a musician so i don't have to um <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean that uh, the visuals aside, like that—that's a whole other element. I mean, I've, I've always been obsessed with, uh, um, particularly megaliths, mm. and, and th these are like these are like megaliths from the future, right? You know, uh, but um, but that whole feeling that um, it it does represent an existential longing i think even just musically there's an existential longing there's um there's a looking backward that like that the the sounds those electronic tape sounds mm. definitely give it a vintage audio feel even if you're not looking at the black and white film totally the audio of the narration feels vintage i don't know why <laughs> um but it does and um so you've got this kind of longing looking back but the electronics that sound like uh old technology there's also some electronic bits that are current or future technology so it 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 gives you a longing for where things are and then you've just got this heartbreakingly beautiful s strings uh and disembodied voices the voices are very strange in the music. I, I tend to not like classical music with voices. Mm. Uh, I tend to like instrumental. But this, the use of voices in this is so treated and alien that I find it super compelling. Um, it, it does go right along with the, the philosophical wonderings of what does it mean to be a thinking, feeling human being? Mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean to be emotional and to contemplate spiritual things in an indifferent universe. <laughs> you, you know, what, what is our purpose on this planet? What is our connection to our planet, to our, each other, to ourselves? It, it, to me that the sound, and again, I might be feeding into it my own stuff, but what is music for besides feeding in your own life? Mm -hmm. You know, to me, all the most, all the most meaningful music, uh, is open for the um, listener to apply to their own experience and to give personal meaning to and have a personal experience. I don't want to live somebody else's life <laughs> through, through music. You know, I, w I want music to frame mine. And uh, this one just does it perfectly. This one is abstract enough to tackle those big questions in a very tangible and um, uh, introspective yet epic manner.
Steve, we'll call it there. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to talk through your new releases, the record and the book, but also your three important records. I've had a great time. Yeah, me too. Thanks for the great conversation. Appreciate it. And if people, once again, if people want to check out your upcoming releases, where's the best place for them to, to head? Uh, Vontil.org or NeurotRecordings.com is probably the best spots. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you very much for listening, everyone, and I will see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.